Hey folks, heads up. This episode contains descriptions of the synagogue shooting. We're not getting into graphic details here, but there are specifics from the attack and the trial, so take care while listening. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh. This sentence is a testament to our justice system and a message to all that this type of heinous act will not be tolerated. The Pittsburgh synagogue shooting trial is over. Today and tomorrow, we're going to talk through it all. The crime, the trial, the punishment, and what comes next. It's Monday, August 7th. I'm Megan Harris, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. I'm with CityCast Pittsburgh lead producer Mallory Falk. Mallory, remind us your connection to this space. So I grew up in the Tree of Life synagogue. I went to religious school there. I had my bat mitzvah there. Um, it's the synagogue that my grandparents started going to in the 50s. So this has been an important space in my family for generations. Um, and then later in life, my mom joined Dor Hadash, which was another congregation in the building. You'll remember there were three different congregations that met at Tree of Life, Tree of Life, Dor Hadash, and New Light. Um, she was actually president of that congregation at the time of the attack and lost people that she knew and, yeah. and considered friends. Rabbis have since said that I think about 530 families considered their members of one of those three congregations. Um, I think it's important to remember that that includes you and your family. Um, and it's definitely brought a different perspective to how we've talked about this trial and the coverage and all of that. Yeah. I mean, I was extremely fortunate that our family all made it through OK, um, but it is but it is a place that we all felt very connected to. So this story is big and tough, and it's been really important to us to begin and end with the people who've been most affected by it, the victims, the survivors, their families. So we're going to start there, their lives before the attack. Yeah, so a lot of the victims were elderly and were kind of the backbones of their congregations. In Judaism, you need 10 people to be present for a service and or in order to hold services. And so these were the people who were really consistent presences at these congregations to form what's called the minion, th that group of 10 adults that you need. Yeah. These were people who were, you know, critical to making sure services could always happen. Um, and you know, just some of the details that have really stuck with me about who these people were. Um, one of them, his name was Mel Wax, and he was someone who, even into his 80s, would park further from the synagogue to leave parking spaces open for people who he thought needed them more than he did, might have more difficulty walking. So he was 87 when he was killed and, you know, an 87-year-old still thinking of others, giving them the space to walk to synagogue. Yeah. Um, Another was Rose Malinger. She was 97 years old. Um, my mom said you would never know talking to her that she was almost 100 because she was still so sharp, so lively. Um, you know, her children during the trial said for most people, 97 is kind of, you know, the end of your life. But that wasn't true for her. Um, she was mostly independent and she was known for 
always hitting the dance floor at family <laughs> parties and events. She loved the chicken dance most of all. Um, there's this great picture of her you can find on the dance floor that I think really kind of captures how much life she still had left. Um, and then there was Joyce Feinberg. I actually spoke with her son, Howard, right after sentencing. And he said that, you know, he wanted people to know that she really lived a life of service. She volunteered at the family house, which provides like a home away from home for people who are traveling to Pittsburgh for medical care. So she would welcome patients and their families who came here for things like surgery. She also took care of kids in this space um, in family court, a children's room that was set up so that children had a place to go during court proceedings. And this is what he had to say about his mom. She would twist herself into knots at any given moment and go to the ends of the earth for anybody at any time, if she could, to find some little way to help make their lives easier, even if it was going to make her life much more complicated. And and you could walk around her apartment and see notes that she would leave reminding herself of things to do and notes that she would leave for anyone who's coming to stay. You know, all the guidance on everything you might possibly need to know or most likely never would need to know about where to find this or that. Uh, That's just the way she approached every day. That was so vivid. I could just picture walking around that apartment. Mallory and I are both getting emotional over here. That's just a taste of of the victims and kind of, you know, the feelings that I think some of their families have been going through ever since. We're going to get a little bit more into that later. Um, a turn. So there was the person who killed them, who chose to do this. His name was Robert Bowers. I want to talk a little bit about him. So he was 46 years old from Baldwin, born in 1972. His parents got divorced when he was about a year old. Yeah. And and by all accounts, he had a pretty tough childhood. Um, his parents fought with each other, sometimes violently. His mother wasn't able to care for him. And he was in and out of psychiatric hospitals as a teen. His father completed suicide when he was seven years old, so he was mostly raised by his mom's parents. He attended Baldwin High School, but dropped out early in his senior year. That would have been 1989, and then worked as a trucker after that. He held some other jobs and took care of his grandfather until he died. Yeah, so about a year before the attack, he started posting all sorts of anti-Semitic content on the social media site Gab, you know, conspiracy theories that Jews are diluting the white race, are causing white genocide. Um, He posted just a lot of really vile material on there. Yeah, all kinds of ugliness. He was into the alt-right, neo-Nazis. One of his final posts on Gab before the attacks was about Hias. It's a Jewish organization that helps resettle refugees in the United States. He claimed that Jews were helping members of Central American caravans moving towards the border. The very last one, he wrote, quote, Hias likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in, end quote. And I should say that it came out at the trial. He told a defense expert that he forgot the last line he meant to include in the post, which was enjoy the Shoah. Shoah is the Hebrew word for Holocaust. So he intended for that to be his final words before he entered the building. Which brings us to Saturday morning, October 27th, 2018. (laughs) 
The show today is brought to you by an incredible local resource, AIDS Free Pittsburgh, and their pledge to end the HIV AIDS epidemic in Allegheny County by 2030. If that is a cause that is close to your heart, make sure you're around for their biggest event of the summer, the sixth annual Too Hot for July. It is a party, but it is also a chance to get confidential HIV and STI testing for free, plus info on the incredible preventative medicines we have now to keep yins happy, healthy, and feeling your most confident out on the town. So come on out to Allegheny Commons East Park on Thursday, May 30th. Yes, July is in the name, but the event is in May. Don't get confused. May 30th from 4 to 10 p.m. There will be DJ sets, a health fair and marketplace, a ballroom-inspired dance battle, cash bar, food trucks, and more. Plus, a performance by Tony Award winner Alex Newell, a.k.a. Unique, from Glee. This is all thanks to True Tea Pittsburgh and so many folks doing the good work out here in the community. So do not miss out. Learn more at TooHotForJuly.com. So that Saturday morning, three different congregations were meeting in the Tree of Life building for Shabbat morning services. There were 22 people in the building at the time of the attack, and half of them never made it out. They were killed. Yeah, Rabbi Jeffrey Myers said later that, you know, it wasn't uncommon to have up to 75 people in the building on Saturday mornings. But because of the time that was chosen, there were far fewer at 9.50 in the morning, Robert Bowers walked into the synagogue and shot and killed 11 people. Other people were shot, too, including police officers who'd arrived just nine minutes later. They fired at each other in waves, and Bowers was hit. He barricaded himself inside for a while, and at 11.08, he was arrested. We are not including a play-by-play of all this here. Um, there's a lot of good reporting about it, and we'll link to those who did that in our show notes if you want to learn more. So that was almost five years ago, October of 2018. And there were lots and lots of questions in the intervening days about the health and safety of the family, about the community, about Squirrel Hill, um, and a lot about the building and what could happen to it after it. You know, they closed the doors immediately. Gates were put up. Memorials were everywhere. There were signs. There were vigils. And as time passed, we also started discussing what kind of sentence Robert Bowers should ultimately receive. And, you know, he he actually offered to plead guilty in exchange for a life sentence. But the federal government decided that this should be a capital case. And I think it's really worth saying here that family members of victims aren't a monolith. Survivors of the attack aren't a monolith. The Jewish community isn't a monolith. And so different people have different feelings about the death penalty. Um, seven of the families wrote a letter to the attorney general saying that they were in support of capital punishment. One of the three congregations, Dor Hadash, came out publicly saying they were opposed to the death penalty in part because Jerry Rabinowitz, a Dor Hadash member who was killed in the attack, strongly opposed it. Um, the two other congregations didn't take a public stand one way or the other, though the rabbi of New Light congregation who survived the attack came out personally saying he was opposed to it. So there, there just wasn't one single stance on this, but the government decided that because of the hateful nature of this crime, it should be elevated to a capital case. Those charges included 63 federal counts, including 11 counts of a hate crime that resulted in death. And part of the reason it took so long to get here, almost five years, there were a number of factors, including, you know, COVID hit 
in the mm-hmm. intervening years. Um, the defense filed a lot of motions asking for more time. But, you know, I mentioned earlier that many of the people in the congregation that day were elderly. And in those intervening years, two survivors of the attack who really wanted to testify in the trial died. One was Judah Samet, who was actually a Holocaust survivor. He was in the parking lot about to enter the building the day of the attack. And then also Joe Charney, who managed to escape to another room and hid under bags of clothes, hoping that that way the shooter wouldn't see him. Um, So during victim impact statements, a number of people brought up their names, stressing they really wanted to be here today. They really wanted to testify, but they didn't get the chance because it took almost five years um, for this trial to see its day in court. And there were also questions about where this trial should actually occur. Um, There were a lot of motions for a change of venue because the defense felt that there was no way the defendant could get a fair trial in Allegheny County. But ultimately, they decided that this was the best place. It was a jury of his peers. And there was really nowhere this trial could occur, that people wouldn't be aware of what happened and maybe have some degree of feelings about it on the front end. Exactly. Which brings us to that trial. So it began with jury selection in April. We'll get more in-depth on what it felt to actually be in that courtroom tomorrow. Um, But for now, here's what you need to know. So there were three phases to this trial. The first was the guilt phase, determining whether or not this man was guilty, which there was really never any doubt about. Right. Um, The second phase was determining whether he was actually eligible for a death sentence. And the key piece of that was determining, did he, could he form the intent to kill? And the jury decided that he did. And the third phase of the trial was then determining whether he should be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of release or whether he should be put to death. And let's jump ahead quickly to that third one. Um, What were the factors that would ultimately affect how he would be sentenced? Yeah, so the jury had to weigh aggravating factors, you know, things that made this crime so severe that he should receive like the most severe punishment available under the law versus mitigating factors, elements of his life that meant a more appropriate punishment would be life in prison. Um, And so some of those aggravating factors that the prosecution argued included that there was substantial planning and premeditation for this attack. This man started planning it six months in advance. He considered a variety of targets, but ultimately chose a synagogue partly for its symbolism. He called Tree of Life the Statue of Liberty for Jews. Dor Hadash, one of the congregations within that building, supported Hayas, um, a refugee resettlement organization that, as we've mentioned, he like expressed a lot of ire for um, online. And so that was part of why he selected this site. Yeah. And he really had three goals for this attack that the prosecution argued showed this premeditation. He wanted to kill Jews. He wanted to scare other Jews to stop them from helping immigrants. And he wanted to draw other people to his cause. He really believed he was a warrior. I really appreciate, Mallory, your your ability to kind of siphon through all of this. I know a lot of us have like really purposefully not engaged with some of this content because it's really difficult to listen to. Um, and I, I hate to say this, but I'm looking at your list and I know we're not even not even through it yet. Yeah. I mean, and I won't, you know, 
Megan, you've mentioned there was a lot of great reporting consistently throughout the trial, so I won't get into every detail here. Um, I attended closing arguments and victim impact statements in the trial, and so that's where what I'm drawing from. Um, so I won't go through every single aggravating factor, but some of the other ones that stood out to me, um, one was vulnerable victims. So eight of the 11 people he killed were considered vulnerable because of their age or their disability. I think we've, you know, in the years since the attack, I've heard a lot about Cecil and David Rosenthal, um, brothers who had fragile X syndrome and were just such an integral part of Tree of Life. I can't remember ever going to services without seeing them there, helping out in some way. And we'll share some reporting about some of their work around the community. Um, The photos in particular, these two really had a special place in the community for sure. Yeah, yeah. One of them was known as the mayor of Squirrel Hill. And then, you know, one of the aggravating factors that, you know, there were others like hatred of Jews, injury to surviving victims. One that had really stood out to me throughout this trial was lack of remorse. Um, You know, before the trial, I had not learned much about this man. He was kind of this abstract figure to me in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, I I think on some level, on some human level, you really want to believe that people aren't all bad, that like given time and space to think about what they've done, no matter how horrible, no matter how atrocious, that there could be a level of remorse, of forgiveness, of regret. But I think what we've discovered through the course of this trial is that this is not a person for whom that applies. It is not. Um, In the time since the attack, he said that his only regret is that he didn't kill more Jews. He was disappointed that there weren't parades thrown for him and he didn't receive medals because that's the reception he was expecting. He is disappointed that no one has beaten his record since the day of the attack. He thought this would incite more attacks. He has made jokes about some of his victims and about the Holocaust that I won't share here, but that I think show that even in death, he refuses to give any of his victims a shred of dignity. And even throughout the trial, he refused to look at any of the survivors, any of the family members as they spoke, even during victim impact statements when some of them either begged him or challenged him to. And so I think lack of remorse was a really striking element of this trial. So those are aggravating factors. Um, There were a few mitigating factors that the jury also considered. Exactly. And mitigating are things that might have softened the sentence, led the jury to choose life imprisonment. And so these a lot of this was about his childhood. You know, the prosecution argued this man was 46 when he carried out the attack and he's now 50, showing no remorse. Um, The defense said, you know, you don't just get over your trauma at 18 or 19 and suddenly are like a, a healed person. But so, yeah, part of it was about his childhood and then also about his mental state. The defense argued that he has schizophrenia and suffered from delusions um, about Jews and that that was what led to the attack and that he really couldn't tell right from wrong. Um, and so there were there were some other mitigating factors as well. But those were like the two, I think, pieces that really were at play. All of which brings us to last week. Last week, we got our answers. On Wednesday, a jury of his peers decided that Robert Bowers should receive the death penalty. 
Yes, they agreed that he had a difficult childhood, that that should be considered a mitigating factor. But they did not believe he's had schizophrenia. There was a lot of back and forth between experts on that one um, and rejected the idea that schizophrenia is what drove the attack. Late that afternoon, some of the family members and survivors of the attack held a press conference. They held it at the JCC in the same room where on October 27th, 2018, they had waited to learn whether or not their loved ones had made it out of the synagogue alive. Today, we've received an immense embrace from the halls of justice around all of us to say that our government does not condone anti-Semitism in its most vile form that we've witnessed and that we were embraced by a system that has supported, nurtured us and upheld us and made the point very clear. We have the right to practice our Judaism and no one will ever take that right away from us. Returning a sentence of death is not a decision that comes easy but we must hold accountable those who wish to commit such terrible acts of anti-Semitism, hate, and violence. When a horrendous crime is committed, it deserves the most severe penalty, and the current state of the law in the United States calls for the penalty that was decided upon by the jury who worked tirelessly throughout this entire trial to uh, they gave up their lives uh, to be diligent and do what needed to be done. This trial is important in enforcing the law of the land. It is also important in sending a signal in the strongest possible terms that anti-Semitism and hate have no place in our hearts, no place in our communities, no place in our country, and will not be tolerated. Thank you. That was Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, who survived the shooting, Andrea Wedner, who survived but lost her mother, Rose Mallinger, Carol Black, who survived but lost her brother, Richard Gottfried, and Martin Gaynor, who survived the attack but, like so many others, lost friends and loved ones that day. The next day, everyone was back in court for official sentencing and the judge's final word. Mallory, I know you were able to be present there with your mom to hear some of this. Um, I actually haven't heard it yet, so um, a little nervous, but. Yeah, I mean, just a warning. Some of this is definitely hard to hear, um, but I think it's important. The families weren't able to really speak publicly about this um, in, until this moment. This was their chance to finally share how this has affected their lives. And so I think it's important to to share some of those details. So you gave me a list. Let's start with Mark Simon. Yeah, M Mark actually lost both of his parents that day, Bernice and Sylvan Simon. And they were actually married in the same chapel where they were killed. It's the place where their marriage started and where their lives ended. You said they showed their wedding photo during the proceedings. Yeah, their wedding photo from some 60 years ago. It was this beautiful photo, and I think it really highlighted part of what made this crime so severe was that this man defiled this sanctuary, this sacred space um, where people celebrated so many life milestones. Including um, you, right? Yeah, including me. Um, that that Pervin Chapel, that's where I had my bar mitzvah. Yeah. So, you know, Mark said that he still has these relics from that day that kind of haunt him, but he can't bring himself to get rid of them. 
So that includes a string of pearls that his mother was wearing the day she was killed and that she also wore on her wedding day. And the prayer shawl that his mother used that morning um, to try to stop the bleeding when his father was shot. What about Andrea Wedner? Yeah, so Andrea survived the attack. She was at services with her mother, Rose Malinger, the one who loved to do the chicken dance. Yeah. Um, And so she just talked about what it was like to kind of be present with her mom for those final moments and and also to not know if she herself would make it out alive because she was shot and injured in the attack. Um, But she also wanted to stress that, you know, she's not letting the shooting destroy her life, uh, that the scars from her injuries are a part of her. And if people ask about them, she doesn't sugarcoat anything, but that they don't define her and the ways in which she's kind of continuing to live um, in honor and memory of her mother. Um, I mentioned before that a couple people challenged the defendant to look at them. The whole trial, he, he'd never looked up. He was just kind of furiously scribbling notes. Um, and Michael Hurt, whose brothers-in-law Cecil and David Rosenthal were killed, asked if the defendant was man enough to look at him and then paused for a moment. It was really striking. We all just sat there in silence and the defendant never looked up. And he said, that's what I thought. One of the things that I thought was really impactful from kind of your initial takeaways was also the people who spoke who didn't bear physical injuries that day, but whose lives have been tremendously affected anyway. Yeah. One example that I think really stood out to me was Dean Root. He was in the parking lot at the time of the attack, getting ready to enter the building, heard the gunshots. um, And he just talked about how much this has changed his life. He was a professor of music at Pitt Um, And says the attack changed his brain so much he wasn't able to focus and think and write in the same way and had to retire early. And he said he lost the career that was his his core mission for more than 50 years, uh, nurturing new generations of students and teachers. Um, And he also, as you can imagine, a music professor, you know, music was such an integral part of his life. And he said he can't go to symphonies anymore because the sound of the percussions is too traumatic and too triggering. Wow. And before we move on, I think one of the other things that was just really important and powerful about the victim impact statements was people sharing both how they'll honor their loved one's memories and how they plan to carry on the Jewish tradition, which, you know, I think feels especially important when this man wanted to prevent people from worshiping. Um, So, you know, during impact statements, Dan Lager, a member of Dor Hadash who was seriously injured in the attack, um, one notable thing is that he actually thanked the defense for, in his words, valuing the sanctity of life, even if their client doesn't. And he talked about how he and another survivor, Marty Gaynor, are committed to reading the Talmud, which is a Jewish legal text, in memory of Jerry Rabinowitz, who was killed that day and was a close friend of theirs. Um, He had said that in retirement, he wanted to read every book of the Talmud. And so they're doing that in his honor. Other people have talked about ways they're going to honor memories. Um, Carol Black, who lost her brother, Richard Gottfried, um, has been taking on more responsibilities at New Light Congregation. I mentioned people, we lost people who were really the backbones of their congregations. And so Carol Black is kind of stepping in to do some of that work that her brother did there. And then, you know, right after the sentencing, I spoke with Steve Weiss, um, who survived the attack. And he was actually my bat mitzvah tutor back when I was 12 years old. He's taught many generations of children at Tree of Life um, how to chant What a reunion. 
Yeah, it it truly was the most wild reunion to see him in the in the hallways of the court. But so he survived the attack. He was a member of Tree of Life and actually was able to run down the stairs to warn people at New Light about the attack. Um, and he had recently participated in an active shooter training and credits that really with saving his life that he knew to run. And so, you know, the legacy that he wants to leave is ensuring that more people have access to that kind of training. I've made it a point now to work with secure community networks and the Federation to be involved in their trainings because the training saved my life. Without that training, I would have stayed in the chapel and I probably would have been the 12th victim. Having the training, I was able to survive, and I feel I need to pay that forward and give other people that opportunity. Yeah. And just one more. Um, The last person to speak during victim impact statements was Michelle Rosenthal, who lost her brothers, Cecil and David. And she said that every October 27th, her family is going to donate to an organization that supports immigrants like Hyas in the killer's name and mail the receipt to his new home wherever he ends up. And we don't know where that new home is going to be yet. Um, U.S. District Judge Robert Colville sentenced him to death by lethal injection, um, but he will be in holding for what could be a very long time before then. Yeah, so this was the first federal death sentence that was imposed um, under the Biden administration. Biden himself has said he wants to end federal executions. I think it's worth noting that the federal government decided to make this a capital case before Biden became president, but his administration um, agreed to have it go forward that way. And But most people are expecting that this case will be appealed. Yeah, I mean, just to look at precedent, the United States reinstated the death penalty in 1988, and the federal government has only executed 16 people since then, three under George W. Bush and the other 13 at the very end of Trump's presidency. And a number of uh, families and survivors had said that kind of like regardless of if and when he is executed, life will look very different for him on death row than if he were sentenced to life in prison. I think a huge concern is that he continues to believe these conspiracy theories and continues to want to spread them, to recruit more people to his cause. And he expressed um, getting enjoyment out of reading media reports about his attack. And so his ability to communicate with the outside world, his access to media, all of that will be much more tightly controlled if he's on death row. And that was an element that felt important to a lot of people, um, regardless of whether or not he is ultimately executed. So... What happens now? Um, Mallory, let's start with the building itself. It's been closed since the day this happened. What happens now? Yeah, so, you know, there was debate about whether to rebuild this space or tear it down. Um, But ultimately, the decision has been made to rebuild it. And it will have a sanctuary, like Tree of Life Congregation will still meet and worship there. But the new space will also include a museum, a memorial, and a center for fighting anti-Semitism. During victim impact statements, the Tree of Life rabbi Jeffrey Myers said that in in many ways, Tree of Life was the 12th victim of the attack. And there are people who have said they will never set foot in that space again. But then, you know, some of the families, it seems like rebuilding in that space, continuing to worship in that space is a real is a real way to reclaim it. Alan Malinger, who lost his mother, Rose, you know, during victim impact statements, he said, like, the synagogue will be rebuilt. 
His children will have their weddings there. His his grandchildren will have their bar and bat mitzvahs there. Um, he said, you know, Jews have suffered and fought for thousands of years before this man came along and will continue after he's gone, and that that space will continue to be a space for joy and celebration and Jewish milestones. So that speaks to community. Um, I don't know, any sense of, of how folks are going to try to move forward? Yeah, I mean, I think for people affected by this attack, this has kind of been, this trial has been looming over them for nearly five years. It feels like it's finally a moment where there's a degree, like, you can exhale, maybe not relief or or good feelings, but you can breathe. Yeah, and I mean, some people actually did use the word relief, and, and people spoke about how now they can really just focus on honoring their loved ones and celebrating their loved ones. I mentioned I spoke with Howard Feinberg, whose mother Joyce was killed right after the conviction. Mm-hmm. And this is what he had to say. It's not closure, but because uh, my mom is still dead. But to have the trial be over at this point uh, can focus on the positive things. And I won't have my mom back. There was you know, my her mother lived to 101. So there's 25 plus years of expected joy that were snuffed out. But we will carry on her memory. I have a cousin who named her daughter born right afterwards, after my mom, Joy. And uh, there are a lot of ways in which we will remember my mom and memorialize her and continue on her good, good works. And I hope others do as well. Well, so those are the facts and some selected experiences for sure. But one thing I think that really struck me through the course of this whole thing is something I learned through you, Mallory, is that, you know, a lot of people found community not just in the experience that they had before October 2018, but in the family that they have built since. A lot of people attended this trial every single day of it or or near that and wanted to bear witness, wanted to feel that, wanted to experience it in community. And one of those people was your mom. Yeah. So you'll hear from her tomorrow about what that experience was like. Thanks, Mallory. Thank you. All of our work this week is in honor of those who died. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabenowitz, Cecil and David Rosenthal. Bernice and Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, and Irving Younger. May their memories be a blessing. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Thank you for listening, and please take care of yourselves. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>